0: This podcast is sponsored by Good Crowd 14, the social enterprise and crowdfunding conference. Learn more at goodcrowd14.com.
1: Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. This episode is produced for Forbes.com where I'm uh, I'm a contributor covering social entrepreneurship and impact investing and today we have three powerful guests who are really making a difference in the world and who are really becoming power players in the impact investing world. These are the community foundation leaders from several of the community foundations across the country. We have with us from the Lincoln Community Foundation Barbara Bartle the CEO and Paula Metcalf the uh, Vice President and General Counsel from the Community Foundation of Utah we have Fraser Nelson the CEO and finally from the New York Community Trust we have CEO Lori Slutsky Uh, ladies thank you all for joining me it's great to have you nice to be here well we're really at an interesting point of course there probably has never been a point in the history of community foundations or philanthropy that has been boring but it seems like there's a lot going on with the advent of impact investing as an issue uh, the growing popularity of DAFs and uh, other shifts including the recent uh, economic challenges that we faced really probably have been putting a lot of pressure on you and your communities. I guess to begin, we need to frame this discussion, though, with what is a community foundation, and and I'll, Lori, if I could, I'd like to ask you to tell us what a community foundation really is.
2: A community foundation is a public charity that has as its raison d'etre a geography, so it's either a city like mine, New York, or it's a state, Utah, or it's a region of the country, and it is um, a proudly parochial institution. It raises money from a community of donors who share a passion for a particular place. It creates an endowment. It works with living donors as well as bequest donors, and it uses that endowment to improve the quality of life for that community.
0: That is great. Now I wonder, Laurie, since you've got the floor, if you would just take a minute and give us one or two examples of some of the specific initiatives that are going on under your leadership at the New York Community Trust.
2: Oh, That, that is actually much harder than it sounds um, because there are so many here. Uh, mine is a city of 42,000 nonprofit organizations that cover the, the gamut from children's services, to feeding poor people, to helping elderly, to arts programs in the schools. And my organization uh, made uh, last year about $150 million worth of grants to about 9,000 of those organizations. Wow. So big initiatives are essentially the city we serve. That's big enough um, wow. and it, right now we're, we're working on a very interesting project to take the most impoverished area of our city, which happens to still be the South Bronx, and create a healthy community project to look at health from both a food perspective, a health access perspective, recreation, parks, a sort of a broad spectrum with a real community focus.
0: Well, that's great. I, I wonder, uh, Frazier, if you would do the same. Tell us a little bit about some of your favorite initiatives from the Community Foundation of Utah.
3: Well, I'd like to start by congratulating my two colleagues on this call for the incredible work they've done in their communities. They've been really a shining light for us. The Community Foundation of Utah is probably the youngest uh, large community foundation in the United States. We just started, Devin, as you know, in 2009. So I look to the New York Community Trust and the grants that you give out and say, whoa, that's that is- impressive. We um, We are, because we're young, really most of our focus has been in engaging younger entrepreneurs in philanthropy, often for the first time. And those donors are looking for the Community Foundation of Utah to help them make an impact in non-traditional ways. They don't think like traditional donors. They come from an entrepreneurial space, and they think of their gifts as... Investments, investments in the nonprofit, investments in the community, and so much of our work has been about engaging the giving minds of those entrepreneurs with nonprofits, so that they understand uh, right from the beginning of their personal wealth that that wealth requires them, or certainly uh, allows them, to give back to the community that helped support it, their their industry or their their startup or whatever it was that they created. So um, we work very closely to help entrepreneurs meet nonprofits. These are people in their 30s and 40s and help them meet them and help them add their skill set to the growth of our nonprofit sector in Utah, which unlike New York City is a very young sector. 80% of the nonprofits in our state have revenues under $100,000 a year. So we're working in a very different environment than Manhattan very different environment than, than Lincoln, Nebraska, and I think that's one of the great things about community foundations is they reflect deeply the communities that they serve.
0: Fantastic. Now, uh, Barbara, I wonder if you would uh, take a minute just to brag about what's going on in the Lincoln Community Foundation.
4: Thank you, Devin. I love to brag about the Lincoln Community Foundation, and uh, want to say it's nice to be here with the Utah Community Foundation. Uh, Foundation and the New York Trust. The Community Foundation in Lincoln is just about to celebrate our 60th anniversary. Um, We represent um, a community of um, about 300,000 individuals. Um, We're a little bit smaller in nonprofit size uh, to New York City. Last year we granted $5.4 million to about 590 organizations in Lincoln. We have really focused most of our um, history on asset development and uh, grant making. And I would say within the past eight years, have really started to focus on a role that many community foundations are focusing on, and that's community leadership. And so the initiatives that I would probably refer to are in that role. Um, About three years ago, we started a veterans initiative to support our returning veterans and their families um, with their uh, reintegration. And last year, um, along with 12 other funders in the community, we funded what we're calling Lincoln Vital Signs. And it's looking at all of the data we already have Um, in the community, but we've never put it together in what I would call a dashboard to look at the strengths and the challenges in our community. And now our next piece of work is to lead the community engagement around addressing the findings um, from that Lincoln Vital Signs. So it's an exciting time at the Lincoln Community Foundation.
0: Wonderful. I wonder I think all of you probably accept as donations uh, donor-advised funds, that you probably all have a program for accepting and managing those. I wonder, perhaps, Frazier, you would just take a minute and give us a quick overview of what a donor-advised fund is and how it's used.
3: Well, donor-advised funds are certainly a growing part of philanthropy. Um, and what they do is it's it's really in some ways in lieu of creating a private foundation, individuals make a gift, an irrevocable gift to the community foundation of their choice, and then the community foundation manages those assets, investing them if that's the donor's intent, um, and then works with the donor to help them direct grants or advise the use of their assets, those assets, for the causes that they care about. And often community foundations are in the position of like we just learned about in Lincoln, helping to uh, let donors know about the needs in the community and advise them about how their assets, how their donor advice fund can be used to best support the needs of that community. So community foundations are often turned to uh, by people seeking to establish a donor advice fund because of that very intimate knowledge and leadership in the community. We have uh, grown at the Community Foundation of Utah. In 2009, we had one donor-advised fund, and we now have about 140 with assets historically of over $40 million. So you can see how they've become really quite popular, and for a good reason.
0: Yeah. Paula, I wonder if you would uh, be willing to address a specific question for us. Congressman Dave Camp has made a proposal that... The DAFs, as they're called, the donor-advised funds, should be subject to a requirement that the assets be distributed over five years so that they couldn't exist in perpetuity like a foundation. I wonder if you would take a minute, Paula, and just uh, help us understand the impact that would have on the donor-advised fund and on the community foundations that manage so many of them. Sure.
5: Well, you know, it is a tool that can be used by people who really don't have the means to establish a private foundation. And we find that to be a very common uh, request of our donors, is to be able to take advantage of a tool similar to having a private foundation, but it's more like their family charitable fund. And, of course, if they were to create a private foundation, Uh, They have a 5% annual um, spending requirement, which is um, significantly less than what would be the result of this proposal. Um, The other thing is that we have about, currently, about 220 donor advised funds, and a good percentage, well, uh, maybe 30 or so of those are specifically entrusted to us to be permanent funds. Those donors asked us to hold those as endowments. And so uh, we just recently received a lovely estate gift from a family who has been very involved in our community for several generations and they asked us to hold their gift in a permanent endowment that their um, children and grandchildren can continue to advise according to our spending rate which is currently four and a half percent. So this would be a real difficulty where we've um, taken on that challenge of holding funds permanently um, and to be good stewards of those gifts and suddenly those funds would become subject to a much more uh, rapid payout
0: requirement. That really is a, a big potential change to what has been an effective instrument for, especially for Community Foundation. Lori, would you like to share your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I, I certainly agree with what's been said. I think it would be a um, very detrimental provision and I think it's it, it's important to remember that um, donor advised funds aren't new although they are far more popular than they ever were before. Uh, I think the first one was actually started in the New York Community Trust believe it or not in 1931 mm-hmm. and the advantage of, of a donor advised fund is it allows individuals living in a community to connect to an organization whose passion and knowledge base is the community and so you can build for the future what will happen if the camp proposal were to become law would be that you would I think force more people to make a choice for a private foundation and it's not that private foundations are bad and they are very good choices for some but for many Combining the passions of a community of donors serves the, the broadest set of community interests over time, and that, I think, is what would be lost.
0: Yeah. It is a, a potentially a big a a deal, 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 I think. And uh, One of the things that I worry about, because I spend time thinking about impact investing a lot, is that it would tend to diminish the ability of donor advised funds to do impact investing because a lot of impact investments, certainly in social businesses would have long lives. Fraser I wonder if as you've been looking at innovative ways to use DAFs if you've given some thought to this question of how they could be used for impact investing and the impact that the camp proposal would have on that aspect particularly.
3: I'm not sure how the CAMP proposal would impact our ability to do impact investing, but I certainly think that it is an ill-advised uh, suggestion because, as we see, really, it's study after study that has been done recently show that donor-advised funds, in fact, spend a great deal of their assets on an annual basis. I mean, our little community foundation in Utah has uh, gives the donor advisors are giving on average $10 million a year into our community. That, those are assets that uh, were really important as we went through the recession, when 38% of the nonprofits in our state shut their doors, and I shudder to think about how uh, what would have happened had we not had this influx of new capital. Now, some of our younger donor advisors are really interested in making alternative investments. So instead of having their funds invested in Vanguard, where we have many of our funds, or Fidelity, or you, you fill in the blank uh, option for investing. They're interested in thinking about how their dollars can be used to create uh, social benefit as well as um, as well as we have a return. And in some cases, our donors invest in a social pool at a at a at a Vanguard or a fund like that. And in others, they want to make an investment in a company that has a double or triple bottom line. So donor-advised funds are are being looked at as a tool that can be used if you think of that as as an alternative investment. They also are a way that people can make, uh, pool their assets together to make a bigger gift in a specific area of social entrepreneurship. That's something that the Community Foundation has done quite a bit of. We have a social investment fund. Where we uh, have a number of our different donors come together, and frankly, people who have private foundations put their assets in this social investment fund. And then those funds are used to provide seed capital for uh, businesses in a nonprofit that are sustainable. And let me just give a very simple example. I don't mean to take too much time, but one of our first portfolio companies is a company that. Uh, helps people with their fruit trees. In Utah we all have fruit trees in our neighborhoods because of our pioneer heritage. I have a very prolific peach tree that I'm dealing with at the moment. So a third of the fruit goes to the owner of the tree, a third of it goes to a local food pantry, and a third of it goes to create jams that are then sold at the farmer's market and create a sustainable source of revenue for this program. That's an example of a type of social investment that can be made from a donor advised fund and from a pooled asset uh, investment plan. So we're excited about this kind of opportunity for donor advised funds and other types of investment.
0: Well, Fraser, Barbara, Lori, Paula, thank you all for joining me this morning. I know that you have been, you're very busy and I know Uh, you've got to go. But I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and insights with us. I I commend you for the great work that you are doing and wish you every success in the future as you continue to build your respective communities.
3: Thank Thank you, you, Devin. Thanks,
1: Devin.
0: All righty. Let's do some good.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Join us for Good Crowd 14, the social enterprise and crowdfunding conference on September 26, 2014 at the spectacular Snowbird Resort near Salt Lake City. Good Crowd 14 will bring together leaders from across the country in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. Register today at goodcrowd14.com because the conference will sell out. The roster of speakers will include Rodney Sampson, author of King Kingonomics, Francis Batista, the leading animal rights advocate and leaders from several crowdfunding platforms and other luminaries. The conference is sponsored by the Utah Governor's Office of Economic Development, Curtin-McConkie, Gate Global Impact, Seed Equity, Elanoff-Grossman Scholl, CrowdEngine, Yesco, and KUER. Learn more at goodcrowd14.com.